I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Today we have the great pleasure of welcoming Marty Colner into our studio. Marty is a prolific director. He has made music videos, comedy specials, concert specials, created television shows. He's had one of the most successful careers in this industry. His career started in 1977 and continues to this day. Some of the people that he has been involved with directing include Aerosmith, John Bon Jovi, Cher, Whitney Houston, The Rolling Stones, Will Ferrell, Jerry Seinfeld, and Robin Williams, just to name a few. His journey starts somewhere completely different than Los Angeles. It began in Ohio. Marty, we look forward to talking to you today. So can you talk a little bit about your early life, where you were born, where you grew up, how you got into this business? Okay. I've had an interesting dichotomy growing up. Um, I grew up in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and in Chicago, Illinois. My father left when I was two years old, and I never saw him again. He passed away when I was 10, and I never really harbored any resentment. I loved him for the fact that he had me and the fact that every time I did something wrong, people would say, you're just like your father. So I figured he must be a pretty cool guy. You never saw him again after two? I never saw him. And he was very wealthy, and he never sent money, but I had no resentment. When he died unexpectedly when I was 10, my family in Chicago decided, oh, my God, he's got this son. We have to culture him up. So I would go from my house in Cincinnati where you would see, like, pictures of ships from Kmart on the wall and silverware that my mom would like pilfer at the local Kreskies <laughs> and, you know, stolen sweet and low packs. <laughs> Little packages to of ketchup. All of a sudden being in the penthouse at the Drake Hotel with real Chagalls, real Monets, real Picassos, fine china, butlers, limousines. It was absolutely a total dichotomy. Are you an only child? No, I have an older sister, or I had, I should say. She passed away. And she was your sister from your dad who left and your mom? Same parents? Same parents. She saw him. I didn't. But what happened to me was I always wanted to go back home where I was in control, you know, rather than that. And it was really interesting that I see these really wealthy people who weren't really happy. And I learned at an early age that money did not equate happiness. But what happened to me and I didn't realize was that without knowing it, I developed an eye mm. because it was easy to see the difference between a Picasso and a $2 Kmart ship. And it sunk in and the combination of that and my mother filling me with cliches, which I used to hate, which became the foundation of my life, like, you know, a man who doesn't build castles in the air doesn't build them anywhere. And she taught me how to dream and dream big. And I had this eye that I didn't even realize that I had. And, you know, I was kind of a wild, unruly kid. You know, I went to college and screwed around and, you know, I wasn't really serious about it. And when I got back home, 
my mother, who was the office manager of TV Guide magazine, was, you know, really concerned. You know, what am I going to do with this bum? And, you know, people <laughs> thought that, you know, I was either going to end up in jail or dead. It's all Jewish people and, say, you know, they a were, bum. <laughs> and they weren't really wrong. You know, we used to, you know, we used to do drugs and womanize and play cards and, typical you know, college typical life. teenage <laughs> yeah. existence. Where'd you go to college? I went to lots of schools. Okay. But uh, the main one was University of Kentucky. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. So when your dad died at 10, you knew early on after your dad died that you were going to have money, but then you were still living with your mom? Like, is, and was Well, there... I knew I was going to get some money, but I figured out a way to spend that inheritance when I was very young. Mm. When everybody died, they gave me a sizable inheritance, but they set it up in a trust where you would get you know, a certain amount of money every month. And when you were 30, you get a lump sum. I walked into the Provident Bank and saw Mr. Vandaway and said, look, I got this will. I want all the money now and I'll give you all the interest up front and I'll sign the will to you. He said, done deal. So all wow. of a sudden, wow. I kind of outsmarted him and I, they were right. I was much too young to have that kind of money, but I had a great time. But of course I blew it all, but I had a good time. I had a really it. good time, right? <laughs> I got a new car. Yeah, I did all that stuff. Going to Kentucky, did you get, like, were you at all involved in betting on horses and stuff like that? Was that part of the mix for you? I I was. I did teach a class there called Light Horse Husbandry. I used to ride every day, bareback. Wow. And uh, I had no hair on the inside of my legs from the riding of the horses. And I worked (laughs) at Churchill Downs. Yes. I I, I was more interested in the horses than the betting on them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Although I did that, too, Mm -hmm. unsuccessfully. So my mom said to me, my nickname was Sonny. She oh. said, Sonny, what about a job in, at a TV station? I said, oh, okay, I'll go talk to him, you know. And I walked into this station called WCPO, Channel 9 in Cincinnati. And the day I walked in was July 31st, 1969. And there was a plane crash at the Greater Cincinnati Airport in Northern Kentucky. And the newsroom had action like I had never seen. There were It was like broadcast news. People were flying back and forth. And I got a job as a prop man, $89 a week. And my first job was as a prop man on the Nick Clooney show, who's George Clooney's father. And I suddenly realized where I was supposed to be. And I had the aha moment. And you couldn't get me out of there. And I was there 24 hours a day learning whatever I could and just soaking it up. So much so that seven weeks later, I was a director. Wow. Wow. And, and did you I, walk in and get that job yourself? Like you were just. Well, my mom sent me up with this promotions guy. Uh-huh. And he liked me, so he, he took a chance. But once I was there and I saw the lights and the action and the. You know, I had done plays in college. You know, and I was in on high school plays and sang and did all that stuff. But somehow it felt very familiar and very comfortable to me. And I developed a passion for it. And, you know, what you realize when you're older is that, you know, without passion, you have nothing. And with passion, you can move mountains. And I was able to move mountains. And I walked into the guy and I said, listen, I'll direct there was a vacancy. If you can pay me the $89 a week you're paying me, he says, we're not going to have a director that makes $89 a week. He said, we're going to raise you to 100 <laughs> I said, great. <laughs> wow. That's fantastic. So the big thing there was the news. It was the guy named Al Shottlecotty who was a very tough taskmaster. 
And he was the first guy where everything was either a picture, a slide, a film, a videotape. It was almost impossible to direct it because he was only on camera going in and out of commercial. It was that fast-paced. But I used to sit back and watch it and audit it. At the same time, the general manager hated me because he was this right-wing guy named Bob Gordon from Oklahoma who wanted your hair short and they have a jacket and tie on all the time and you walk into his office and there's a picture of uh, Barry Goldwater and J. Edgar Hoover on the wall Nixon. and his desk was high and your seat was low and there was a gun in his drawer and he was about as far to the right as you could get and I was as far to the left as you could get. So, you know, I was in the SDS, the Students for the Democratic Society. It was like really a battle, political battle. So he wanted to get rid of me. But I just kept doing good work. So, you know, he hit a hard time. And then what happened is I got a break in a very strange way. The guy who directed the news was a guy named Sid Kites. All of a sudden, one afternoon, he flew out of the station. His daughter was killed in a car crash. There were seven directors on staff. Nobody was there but me. And Gordon called me up and said, you're it. You're doing the news. You I mean said, like get right, on camera bring it on. do the news? Like you no, no, I'm directing, directing it. it. Okay, okay. Wow. So somehow I got through it perfectly and I went from, you know, goat to hero and literally rose to become the star director in Cincinnati, Ohio. I think I was 23. I said, you know, I want to make $10,000 a year. So I went into the general manager's office and says, you know, how about a raise to 200 bucks a week? He said, well, let me think about it. So about a month went by, and I was directing this afternoon. You directed everything at this station. I was directing this show, and he said, Bob Gordon wants to see you. I said, oh, good. Here comes the raise. So I go into his office, and he said, my boy, I'm not giving you a raise. I said, why is that? He said, because you defy me. You always have your jacket off. Your hair's too long. You don't follow my rules. And I don't care if you're the best director. You're not getting a raise. I said, okay, thank you very much. I walked into the production manager's office and says, I'm gone. I don't know where I was going to go, but I said, I'm gone. And there was a broadcasting magazine on the the, uh, table. I picked it up and I saw an ad for a job in Cleveland, Ohio, doing commercials for $13,500 a year. I said, holy crap, this is me. So There's the universe just <laughs> serving yeah. right up for you. And that was yeah. above 10000 so there yeah, you go. Yeah, I said to my wife, I said, we're rich. I said, I'll go nail this job. And that's what I did. I nailed it. It was a UHF station in Cleveland called UAB, Channel 43. And I directed everything from Bowling for Dollars to Barnaby <laughs> Jones. It was awful. I hated Cleveland. I hated the job. I hated being there. I was fairly miserable. I was there for about a year year and I didn't know what I was going to do. Do you feel that that talent in you was there, that this really was what you were going to do? Like, did you sort of know? Once I was there, I knew and I had opened up my creative side on a drug trip a year earlier. On a drug trip? Yeah. High schools are not really for creative people. You know, the physics class is the math class. You're getting through chemistry is torture. A friend of mine went to uh, Berkeley, and, you know, Berkeley was the drug capital of the college world in the early 70s and late 60s. He came back and he said, Sonny, I've got this tab of synthetic psilocybin. He said, let's go do it. So three of us went, because it was so illegal, 
we went and we rented a hotel room next to the refineries, a motel room, Motel 6. We took this capsule and emptied it into a glass of water and passed the water around. I must have gotten the biggest gulp because I didn't come down for three months. I got stuck. And all of a sudden when I went back to college, instead of being the rabble rouser, I was, you know, sitting by the trees reading Gabron and Sartre and Nietzsche. I was another person for about three months. I was aware of things that I wasn't aware of before. Like all of a sudden I noticed that the uh, Texaco had a green tea in the middle and that the FedEx had an arrow in the, uh, in the logo. And, and I noticed that uh, I could hear, like I said, the bugs on the trees. I could, you know, it was it was amazing. I wasn't scared. I, I wanted to come back. But all of a sudden, you know, from being a guy who caused trouble, they wanted me to be the president of the fraternity. That's how different I became. <laughs> wow. That's how mellow Three months I got. of that. So you understood wow. that was a place that you could be. That was a dimension of yourself. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it did open up my creative side which I always had, but it was never nurtured because they were so busy shoving algebra down my throat, which I hated. You know, it just wasn't for me. So in their eyes, you know, I always thought I was really smart, but they thought I was, you know, a malcontent. And I, they were right because, I, you know, I didn't really like school. And then one day I snapped back. It just like happened in an instant, but I still retained all the stuff that had happened to me. So now I became like wildly creative and I was creative every day. So it did open up a side of my brain. That's amazing. That story. is an amazing that story. I didn't really Talk know. An and it's journey, honest to God, true story. So now I'm in Cleveland, and there were like a bunch of directors in Cincinnati, and one of them was this guy named Ron Demarais, who's a pretty famous Hollywood director now, and he went to BZ in Boston. He called me one day, and he said, "You know, there's an opening up here." And he said, "The Boston Celtics need a television director." I said, "Hello." <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? Because sports was a big part of my life. I played baseball in college. It was a big part of of who I was. So I went up for an interview and nailed the interview. I got the job. I went from thirteen five to 14000 a year. Very excited. And for the next three years, I directed everything at the station, including the Celtics. Were you still married to your Shiksa I was still married to my wife at the time. We lived in Swampskit Lynn on the ocean. I bought a house. I had a kid. I ended up having another kid. So there you were directing, having great passion in your life, loving what you were doing. Loving my kids, life. Kids living on a lake. Big director Live- in Boston. Loving my life. I was a star. Right. You know, and it was cool. And the Celtics announcer was a guy named Dick Stockton, who wasn't on staff at BZ, but he did the stuff and he started telling this little company in New York who he was freelancing for about me. So I'll get to that in a minute. So I started freelancing for them. And then in 1975, I had two offers. One was at NBC Sports. It was for $85,000 a year. And it would be to direct, remember this is 75, so it was good money. It was going to be to direct the Kentucky Derby, the World Series, the Major League Baseball, the NBA, you know. They wanted me to take over for this guy named Harry Coyle. It was a dream job. Mm -hmm. And the other was this little company I was freelancing for. They had about 10 employees, and they only offered me $35,000 a year. But they said, you can be in charge of the look of the network, you can be in charge of the feel of the network, and you can direct any specials that will come in will make you exclusive. And that company was HBO. And so I took that job. 
And was it as much about the kind of content? Like, did you start to realize at that point, because you've got sports, which is one side, and then you have music, entertainment. I always think that journeys into the unknown are really frightening. But if you can get through them, the reward at the end is monumental. So I like the idea of being a big fish in a small pond and starting something new. I had no idea it was going to turn into what it turned into because we didn't really know what we were doing. We just were going on instincts. So I took the job at HBO and the first special I got was the first stand-up comedy special ever done. It was called Evening with Robert Klein. It was done at Haverford College where Jerry Levin, who was the chairman of the board, later famous for fucking up the AOL-HBO deal, went to school. So we wanted to butter him up, so we decided to do it there. And I really wasn't sure what I was doing. Again, I was going on instinct. And I went and did this show. It was really not properly done. I didn't have enough close-ups. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I knew I had sprinkled my magic on it. I knew I had made it magical. I went backstage. Nobody had ever done that before. I went verite, which is what I've done in every project. I have this ability to sprinkle magic on it, which is what makes the difference between a hit and not hit, quite honestly. And I took it back to my boss at the time, a guy named Harlan Kleiman, and he said, this is awful. He said, I hope you can get your job back in Boston. Wow. And I said, oh, that's shit, <laughs> I'm in trouble. So he said, I don't think I'm going to air it. I said, what are you talking about? I said, it's brilliant. You have to air it. And it became a big argument between him and Jerry Levin on whether or not to air this show for their 500 subscribers or whatever they had in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and Levin won out. They aired it. I was in I remember this distinctly sitting in a hotel room New Year's Eve because it aired on New Year's Eve of 75, sitting in a cold uh, New York hotel room, talking to my wife in Boston where we still lived, saying, you think I can get my job back at BZ and blah, blah, blah. And to make the story short, the next day, the New York Times wrote four columns on it. No kidding. John O'Connor changed my career. Now, I always refused to meet him because he always wrote great things about me. I didn't want to spoil his image. And <laughs> so all of a sudden, I went from 35000 a year to 350000 a year and was given my job back in a series called On Location and Young Comedians and Standing Room Only where we did young comedian shows. I would sit in the comedy store and we found people like Robin Williams and Jerry Seinfeld and Gallagher and Andy Kaufman. And all these guys went on to have big careers. Many of specials I ended up directing later and it was born. Now, flash forward, you know, about eight or nine years later and I'm laying in bed and I now moved to California. I had been divorced and I was out here, and I got tossed out of the Beverly Hills Hotel because I was doing a special with Chevy Chase, and he was all tanked up, and we ended up having an altercation, and I went out to a meeting. I came back. There was a padlock on my door at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and they said, we're sorry. I won't tell you the story, but he said, well, you're, you're sorry. You can't stay here anymore, and I said, well, then I'm moving here. So I called my boss, Michael Fuchs, who was there after I was at HBO, and I said, how about HBO West? He said, why not? And that's how HBO. HBO West started. 
Now I'm laying in bed, and I'm and there were, they had a thing here called the Z Channel, and I bought this big house in Beverly Hills, which I couldn't afford, and this video came on called Betty Davis Eyes by yeah, an Australian yeah. director named Russell Mulcahy. Uh-huh. And my eyes got as big as saucers. It broke every rule. It was the most creative thing I had ever seen. There was jump cutting. They were crossing the line. All the things you're not supposed to do. And I said, I have to do this. Now, I was in a big seven-figure-a-year job at this point. This is why I think I first met you. So I said to my wife, my new wife, who I'm still with and I love dearly, Eliza. Who's not a shiksa. <laughs> No, she's Israeli. She's Israeli as they come. (laughs) And I said to her, I got to go do this. I want to quit. Now, here we are in this big house. If I quit, that means I had no money. And how are we going to survive? And to her credit, she said, go for it. As deeply as I was in love before and after that, you can only imagine what I felt. I said, okay, I'm going to go for it. So I went to New York. And I had a fairly big name in New York, and I went to see a guy at Atlantic Records called Ahmed Erdogan. Ahmed. Oh, yeah. Who a legend was the, in the founder business. of Atlantic Records uh-huh. and signed the Rolling Stones and I think the Who. I'm not sure. Also a but, very creative man. Yeah, he was amazing. Yeah. He said, I want to do videos. He said, okay. Nobody knew what they were. I actually owned the first video I did. He said, I got three bands. Pick one. I said, what are they? He said, one is a band called Zebra. A band from Louisiana. He said another one is In Excess, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Michael Australian. Hutchins from, from Australia. Australia. And he says, I got this bar band I don't know what to do with called Twisted Sister. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> <That's something. laughs> I like the fact that they were both rock and roll and comedy, right? So I said, okay, I want to do them. And he says, well, what do you think the first song should be? Listen to the album. And I said, I think it should be this song. We're not going to take it. So I did this video, we're not going to take it, use my son because he was the only one that could do Pete Townsend windmills on the guitar, (laughs) and it exploded. Wow. I mean, exploded, and then I really became a star. So MTV had launched? Barely. Barely, Barely. right. Right. And they needed good programming. So they aired this thing ad nauseum, and, you know, MTV was like national radio. The Mm -hmm. more spins you got... You know, all of a sudden they sold five million records from being a bar band. And I had no agent, no manager. I just had MTV. And people say, who did that? I want them. Next thing I did was Pat Benatar after that. And then it just, and then I had done a concert with Stevie Nicks, who changed my life when I was at HBO. And I started doing her videos and Fleetwood Mac and... So is it as much about the storytelling in short form with music? Like, Well, in the beginning... I used to get hired because I made women look beautiful. Mm -hmm. So I would shoot all the beautiful women from Diana Ross to Gladys Knight to Cher. It would all come to me. But along the way, I realized that form followed content and that the storytelling was more important. So the video I did for Twisted Sister had a narrative. It was the first time a video had a narrative. So from that point on, all my videos told stories. That's really groundbreaking. I mean, t- yeah. to be the first guy doing that. Yeah, I rolled the th- I did what I thought. You know, I, I always felt like if I pleased myself, because I was from the Midwest, that I would please my audience. And I always insisted in part, every deal I had, I had autonomy. I said, 
No artists are coming to the editing room. I said, I'm not going to be stuck putting more shots of the drummer in. I said, I'm going to make the, my film, and if you don't like it, just don't hire me again. How were the artists in response to what your visions were? Did well, you at have... first they didn't like it, but all their videos went number one. So their managers would tell them, that's the deal. If you want Marty Colner, that's what you get. Did you have to sit with them and discuss your vision and tell them what you were Yes, yeah, so in the beginning I sat with them and discussed the ideas. You know, I wasn't that strong, but after the first four or five went to number one, they just sent me the song and I filmed their performance and told my center. So the trust that the artist had in you and your hand in directing and making them fulfill the dream of what their song was must have been, you were groundbreaking uh, in getting these people to trust you. Except the dream of what their song was was my dream. Right. Yeah, they would need your vision. Right. Yeah, they would kind of sure. resent it. You know, the yeah. drummer would call up and say, I'm not in the video enough. And I said, huh, you're part of the LI3. He said, what's that? I said, the least interesting three. <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> Joe Perry and Steven Tyler are the ones that I'm focusing on because they give me the best performances. There has to have been some point in time on video four or five or six of your directorial career where they knew to trust you instinctively. And whoever authored the song and wrote that song had to put their vision of the song in your hands to bring it to life. Yes. It's a different art form making mini movies like you were doing, a completely different art form than what artists are creating musically. Right. And I I also don't think artists are the best judge of what they look like. Right. I remember when I did the Bette Midler special for HBO, I wouldn't let her in the editing room. She went crazy. And she ended up getting nominated for 10 Emmys and winning the Emmy, you know, but... And they can't be objective and then they get in there and they muck it up and they just water it down too many for cooks. the wrong reason. So, right? Yeah. And it's an auteur kind of vision mm-hmm. if you want to be successful. So I always took the take, well, you know, just don't hire me again. But if you look at my resume, you'll see that bands came back 10, 12, 13, 14 times, multiple multiple, multiple. Who was the most difficult? You know, it's funny. Mick Jagger's got a history of hiring a director one time. You know, I worked for him seven times in a row. I shot him in live on Madison Square Garden for HBO. And then I did all the flicks on four flicks. Where I shot him in Buenos Aires and Rio de Janeiro and Paris and London, and Amsterdam, Toronto, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't think they were difficult. I happened to get along really well with Keith Richards. Mm-hmm. And I took the take that while Mick was the brains of the band, the heart and the balls were Keith. <laughs> That's for sure. And after the show in New York, Keith sent me flowers. He usually put knives on people. And the book I was going to write was going to be Keith Sent Me Flowers. You very early on established control, which is very unusual for people in creative fields to have that kind of control. Inside of that control, were there collaborators that you worked with to create the success? I had this one guy who's worked for me for 30 years, Mm -hmm. Randy Gladstein. Mm -hmm. He was my collaborator. And what would happen is, is that we'd get a song. We'd literally start with a blank piece of paper. And he was the one I would bounce stuff off of. And he was, I have to give him credit, he was my collaborator. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you value collaboration in addition to control in terms of... As long as I have the final say, right. I value collaboration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Well, if I'm going to die, I want to die on my own sword. <laughs> right. That's one of the reasons I never did features, because as a first-time feature director, you don't have that kind of control. And I couldn't afford it. You know, Cher once said to me, how come you're not doing features? I said, I can't afford it. You know, they were going to not pay you too much for the first one. I was doing my little mini movies. I was very happy. And that's why I don't do commercials. I did one commercial for British Knight's 
tennis shoes, and there were so many agency people there and clients, and I said, what the hell is this? I had no control. So it turned out to be garbage, and I knew why. Right. And so I said, I'm done with that. Well, you've also had, I mean, all the years I've known you and have seen you through all of the trials and tribulations, I've never seen you be crabby, never seen you raise your voice, I've never seen you display any kind of stress outwardly. And I'd love to know, you know, your, well, you your disposition is— at the door, so to speak. Right. Okay. And I think if I have any strength is that I have no ego when I work. The only thing I interest I have is the film. That's the ego. I just want it to be every frame to be great. And, you know, I don't care if the idea comes from the guy sweeping up the floor. You know, the definition of a good director is he listens to all ideas. He takes the one he wants and then takes credit for all of them. Yeah. So there's an improvisational aspect to what you do. 100%. But you can't improv if you don't have a plan. All right. I think preparation is the biggest key. I am a huge preparer. I remember one time ZZ Top came to me. Their manager, may he rest in peace, Bill Ham, said to me, "Uh, we want to do a video. We got $300,000 and we need it in two weeks. And I said, I'd love to take your money. But if I give you a video in two weeks, you're going to say, oh, my God, Marty Colner, fuck me. And I gave him $300,000. He didn't give me the type of video that he usually does. So I can't do it. I said, I'd love to, but I can't. Six months later, he came to me and he said, okay. He said, I got three months for this next video and I'll give you a million dollars. I said, done. And he later told me, he says, I gave you the million because you turned down the 300000 So long-term goals and being right. honest in only the work matters. Yeah. Well, if it's not great, I'm going to kill myself trying to make it great. And if you look at my stuff carefully, every project I've done has had risk and have done things that could have failed. And most of the time they worked. But I've always taken chances, always taken risks, like doing doing Mark Anthony in Madison Square Garden, did an eight-minute shot live. You know, if it screws up, we're done. You know, and uh, one camera, you know, I always took chances, big time, big time chances. Did you, if you thought, oh my God, this is just going to go down the toilet, what was that feeling of, oh, it could all just blow up? Never had it. Didn't exist for me. Uh. I just knew I'd find a way to make it work. You know, maybe I had a little luck along the way. I mean, you have to have some luck. But preparation, you know, listen, it looks risky, but it was all prepared. To the last detail, I am an unbelievable preparer, you know. And then when something like I was doing Garth Brooks in Central Park and the stage caught on fire and I had to improv and sort of go back to my news and cover it. But once that was done... I went right back into my plan. You know, every one of my live shows, when I do Justin Timberlake and had 47 cameras, every shot was planned. Every shot was shot sheeted. 47 cameras? Yeah, it was in the round. Wow. And the live ones are tough. When you edit a show, you just have to get it on tape. And then you can go in the editing room and you can make it what you want because everything's made in the editing. When you do it live, you're doing a live edit. So you have to spend a long time preparing. I can't tell you how many times I was in New York when everybody else was out partying. I was in my hotel room with my assistant director working, working, working because all I really cared about was the finished product. And I figured that someday I'd be known for a body of work. And that's what happened. What was your favorite project or the one you're most proud of? They're all my babies, but (laughs) the video I liked the most was an Aerosmith video called Living on the Edge, Mm -hmm. which was totally creative. You know, we painted Tyler in a Varushka body painting and put Perry in front of a train and 
And the ones I'm most well known for from Aerosmith were the Alyssa Silverstone and Liv Tyler pieces. But my favorite concert, I think, was Justin Timberlake and Madison Square Garden. I think my favorite stand-up show was Chris Rock, Kill the Messenger. Although I like I like them all, but you know, yeah, the Robin Williams ones. And I love Robin Williams. Turned out to be the one from Broadway, the live one was the biggest selling comedy DVD of all time. It was a wonderful. And that was live. Wonderful. Now you have to understand shooting him live. Holy shit! Yeah, you know? talk about and unpredictable. I, not only that, here talk about taking risks. Okay, I was inspired by a show called All in the Family, where. The director would get laughs on the close-ups he would take of Carol O'Connor, above and beyond the script. He would cut to a close-up, and the timing on it was so good, it would, it would get me a laugh. So he took the comedy up a step. So when I saw Robin, I realized he did all these impressions, and I wanted to be as close in on his face when he did those impressions. Now, when you're doing live comedy, if you go a millisecond too early, you're anticipating, and... You're letting the audience know something's happening. If you go a millisecond too late, you miss it. So it, it's really critical that your timing is impeccable. And are you calling all these shots and all that? I'm calling all the shots. So it's like a total in the moment. It's like right. sports right. and news. Right. Yes. Which is my life, yeah. live in the moment. So I said, how the hell am I going to do this live? I traveled to 40 shows to watch him. Nobody else does that. No. You know, and I... Went and went. I said, how am I going to do this? Until finally I realized he had a tell. And if you look at the show, you realize before he goes into any impression, like the prime minister of Canada is going, you know, he always used the word going. And once I got found out that tell, I knew what the hunk was going to be. And I just waited for it. And when going hit, I hit that close up live. I mean, extreme close-up and it worked but was i gambling oh boy big time and it wasn't anything he told you he didn't even realize he did it so when you look back on all the success in it what would you tell your 18 year old self i would say you're only as good as your last project never believe your own bullshit i always operated under fear of failure and then i knew that if i wasn't great i wasn't going to work again at least i always felt that way so i always looked at each one like a life and death situation and therefore i would stay in the editing room you know 80 hours straight if i had to i was famous for you know satelliting my videos to mtv because i never made it on time you know so I, they would come through satellite <laughs> but they liked them so they let me get away with it but i would say preparation and stick to itiveness and not giving up on your vision no matter what you are a guy that i have never seen bend on integrity not, not creatively. Not for one second. You've no. never bent on integrity. Not creatively. I, it just it just kind of built up, you know, just all of a sudden it was 30 years later. Honest to God truth, every time I did one, no matter who it was for, I thought it had to be genius. I really did. Now, did I hit it every time? No, but I hit about 90%. But the reason I decided not to be like mega famous was that because I didn't have a family growing up, I wanted to have a family and... In order to become famous, it's a lot of work, and you have to put the work in. And I said, I'm going to put the work into my family, and I think that's my success, is I love my kids. I love my wife. We have a great time. Rebecca will tell you she knows them really well. And, you know, without them, none of this would mean anything. Thank you so much for coming. It was truly my pleasure to have you in the studio today. On the next Say It Forward... 
He's considered one of America's great guitarists, but he's also a very successful singer-songwriter, performer, record producer, and actor. Ray Parker Jr. is best known for writing and performing the theme song for the hit movie Ghostbusters, which earned him Golden Globe, Grammy, and Academy Award nominations for Best Original Song. Before Ghostbusters, Ray had a successful solo music career with his band Radio. He wrote, played, and toured with such iconic artists as Barry White, Marvin Gaye, and Stevie Wonder. His songs have reached number one, and he's had more than 15 songs in the Hot 100 on the Billboard charts. He launched his own podcast, has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and if all that's not enough, a documentary of his life story is in the works with the title, Who You Gonna Call? Well, the answer to that question is simple. We called Ray Parker Jr. So join us as he rewinds to the beginning on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 